Amen. If you would, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, and we will read down to chapter 10, verse 4. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, your words... Our words are of wisdom. Lord, and how needy we are for your divinely inspired word. Lord, we pray that if there is any pride, if there is any arrogance in our hearts, that by your Spirit you would help us to lay those things aside so that we may humbly receive your word and submit to your word. Help us to receive your word as you speaking to us this morning. And we pray that by your spirit, you would take the truths of your word and plant them deep into our hearts and cause them to bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the clothing you wear, particularly the accessories that you might wear, such as a tie, or a ring, or a necklace, or perhaps a fragrance, cologne, or perfume. And people consider these things a lot, and considering the kind of occasion that they might go to, and that will depend, and that will determine what kind of attire you will put on, what kind of accessories you will also adorn yourself with. But my aim here is not to give you sort of practical advice on how to dress properly for every occasion, 
but my intent is to talk to you about a particular accessory that the Bible tells us about. And the Bible does say some things about accessories that you wear, but there's one particular accessory that the Bible gives a great deal of attention to. The kind of accessory that we should pursue. The kind of accessory that we should wear about our necks. In the wisdom literature of the scriptures, and including Ecclesiastes in its own unique way, it presents to us wisdom as something that is valuable and worth getting. And I don't have the time to take you there, but in the book of Proverbs, just reading the first few chapters, it presents wisdom as this precious accessory that everyone who walks in the fear of the Lord should be after. That is precious than anything that you might find in the world. More valuable than any treasure. This kind of accessory adds flavor to one's life. It has a kind of distinct flavor to one's attire. Yes, perhaps to, in a way I think to their physical attire, but speaking more to their spiritual attire. Because as Christians, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are adorned with the robe of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible also presents to us this accessory of wisdom, the crown of the Christian life, that we would be wise in pursuing and valuing and treasuring. So considering our passage this morning, it has a great deal to say about this wisdom that we would be wise adorning ourselves with. And so how does this, how does this crown or how does this necklace of wisdom adorn the life of its possessor? Well, first... Wisdom submits. We see this in verses 11 and 12 of our passage. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken, out of, taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So the race, the battle, the bread, the intelligence, or the riches, excuse me, the favor of men, these are some of the things that the world is after, that people are generally after. So they will run as hard as they can. They will grow in intelligence and wisdom and knowledge they will put their wisdom in application to gain more for themselves. These are things, generally speaking, that people pursue throughout their life. Why? Because, like pressing grapes for their juice, people desire to get as much flavor out of life as they can, as, possible, as much as possible. So people will work hard. They put their minds to the books. They will work as diligently as they can in order to reap the rewards of their hard work. And many people do succeed. They gain the reward that they went after. Many of you are sure, I'm sure I'm familiar with Shark Tank, and it's been on for several seasons now. And in each episode, they sort of retell a little bit of a story of one entrepreneur or a group of entrepreneurs who seasons ago 
were in the tank and they struck a deal with one of the sharks and they tell you, well, before we were making this amount and now, thanks to our partnership with this uh, shark, our business now has this million or millions of dollars in revenue. Right, it's a success story. And this is all you hear, these success stories. But the preacher would actually say that the stories of success are actually not the norm. In fact, if you look at the statistics, the statistics that are out there, it actually tells you that only about 25% of new businesses actually make it to year 15. So 75% of these new businesses actually don't make it that far. And so it seems to be the case that failure is the norm and that success is a rarity. And so the preacher is definitely not the kind of guy that we would ex- invite to our sort of motivational speaker conferences. If anything, he's more of a demotivational speaker because he tells us sort of the reality, and the reality is that many people work hard and run hard in the race and put their wisdom to practice and their intelligence and all these things, and actually never get to see the fruit of their hard labor. And one reason being because of time and chance. Again, considering the secular person, the person who either does not believe in God or the person who believes that there might be a God, but he cannot be known, all people have this sort of this abstract idea of chance or good luck or fate, essentially is saying that, well, fate or chance or whatever you want to call it happens, and sometimes it ruins all of your hard work. And so if you want to be successful in the eyes of the world, not only do you need a combination of hard work, but you also need some good luck. Or or chance or that fate, whatever you want to call it, might look down upon you favorably. Because there are things that are uncontrollable, there are things that we cannot predict or, or prepare for that happen and just ruin years upon years of hard work. But alternatively, in the world, we do find people who find success without working very hard at it at all. So the preacher's point is that, from a secular perspective, you want success, you need hard work, and you also need some good luck. Because there's a lot that can happen in one's life, whether it's a personal tragedy, whether it is a natural catastrophe. All of these things can bring ruin upon a person. In addition, death comes for all reinforcing the idea that we saw last week, and that is that death makes everything temporary. Your hard work, your success, the fruits of your labor, your very life, it's all temporary because of death. And so whatever you're after, whatever you pursue, whatever you gain from your hard work, it's all temporary. And it's not necessarily... preventing you. He's not necessarily commanding us to not grow in wisdom or intelligence or in knowledge or to work as hard as we can. 
right, just in the section before, we saw that if whatever God has assigned for you to do, do it as well as you can. But the idea is, whatever you work at, remember that whatever you accomplish in this world, you will not be able to take with you. That is, in the afterlife. So I said that this first point is wisdom submits. Before actually getting to what I mean by that first point, is helpful. I think it would be helpful for us to consider what wisdom is. It's been some time, some, a long, a long, I think a long period of time, at least through the summer, we've been going through Psalms, and so it's been a while since we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think it was perhaps in the first sermon in Ecclesiastes that I talked about what wisdom is. So for a moment, let's talk about what wisdom actually is. Wisdom is a mastery of the art of living in accordance with God's expectations. It is a mastery of the art of living in accordance with, with God's expectations. It is like the old usage of the word wisdom. So when somebody has a mastery over a particular instrument or a particular skill, the person who is well acquainted with this instrument or is really knowledgeable in this skill, like somebody that might go on and train others, would be considered somebody who is wise with this skill or with this instrument. Now, it, mastery does not mean perfection. Even the most trained instrumentalists can make some mistakes. They can get some things wrong. No one is perfect in anything at all. But the point is, is that they know their instruments so well. They know the scales. They know how to apply the scales. They can create music. And they have such a well-rounded knowledge of their instrument that they can go on and teach others. It's not that they never find it challenging. It's not that they never challenge themselves, but it's that they continue to grow in their skill. And so in the same way, with wisdom in the Christian life, it is not to mean that we come to this place where we have achieved perfection and we have mastered the Christian life, in the sense that we've achieved it, we've got it, but it is that we understand what God's expectations of us are, that we understand the Word, that we apply the Word, that we read the Word, that we study the Word, we know what God desires of us, and we seek to apply it. That is how you gain mastery in the Christian life. That is how you grow as a Christian. And the wisdom that you glean and understand from reading and studying and learning and applying the scriptures you seek to apply in all areas of your life. And this wisdom, the way in which it adorns the life of its possessor is that it humbles you. Because wisdom, you cannot have wisdom without submission. And wisdom always submits to the sovereignty of God. Because God is the master of time and chance. Proverbs 16.9 tells us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In Luke 12.15-21, Jesus tells a parable that I think fits well with many of the themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here, Jesus, speaking to the crowds, says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, why does Jesus consider this rich man a fool? Was it because he worked hard to produce a plentiful crop? No, that's not it. Was it because he desired to provide for himself? No, that's not it either. Was it because he applied his wisdom and knowledge to agriculture? No, that's not it either. Was it because he built large barns for himself? No, that's not why he was considered a fool. He was a fool because he spent his life chasing wealth as a great desire of his life and neglected to heap up for himself treasures in heaven by walking in the fear of the Lord. What you see in the example of this rich man who gained up all this treasure for himself is that he did it with no submission unto God. In a way, this is sort of the textbook picture of a secular person. This is what essentially he gives his life to. There's no acknowledgement of God, much less is there a submission to the sovereignty of God, that God is the master of all of our lives, that ultimately he is the one who directs our paths. The person of wisdom surely works hard and increases, but at the same time he also maintains an eye on the sovereignty of God. He says, Lord, I desire to go in this direction and do these things, praying that you would bless my efforts. But if the door is shut, and if I should not meet success, it is because you have closed the door, and you have saw fit that perhaps it is better for me to experience failure than to experience success. So wisdom submits to God as the one who is sovereign over all, including the life of man, and submits to his ways, submits to his will, and submits to his word. The second way in which wisdom beautifies the life of his possessor is in how wisdom blesses. So the preacher then goes on to tell a story to show us the value of wisdom and why we should prize it above all things. How valuable is wisdom? What is it worth? Is it really to be cherished and prized above all things that we can find in this world? And so to show us how precious wisdom is, he gives us a short story. And if I may, let me elaborate on this story to make the same point that this preacher is intending to make for us. Though it's once a little city, densely populated, but still a little city, a little, little enough for people to know each other, for you to know the person who lives across the city. And it was an ordinary day. It was a wonderful day. It was a bright and sunny day. People are out and about. The town square is filled. Children are outside playing. People are having conversations. The shop owners 
have their shops open, people are buying, people are selling. It's just a typical normal day until suddenly people begin to hear the sounds of thunder. The watchman who's up on the walls of the city is asleep because nothing ever happens. But he also, too, hears the sound of what appears to be thunder. So he looks out on the horizon and he realizes it's not the sounds of thunder, but it's the sounds of many horses with mounted soldiers heading directly for the city. And by their hard pace, he can immediately tell that they are coming for one single purpose, and that is to lay siege to the city. Immediately the, sound, the soldier sounds the alarm. It's heard across the small city, and people hear it, and immediately everything stops. There's no more conversations. The kids stop playing. For a moment, people are wondering, is this really happening? They take in the sound, the sound that they've never heard before, that they've never been familiar with, a sound that nobody ever wants to hear. And for seconds, that seems like hours, there's this silence until finally they realize that the sounds of the alarm are going off and they immediately pick up their children, go to their houses, the shop owners close up their shops, people are running frantically through the streets looking for refuge, and immediately the skies are darkened by the first wave of arrows. The soldiers on the walls are hit and struck. People on the city are struck. And quickly, the king of the city meets with all of his advisors and counselors. They go to the throne room, trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we resolve this? We don't have enough soldiers to protect our city. This guy is yelling out this advice. This guy is proclaiming or, or shouting this, uh, this idea. Things are tried. Nothing works. The clock is ticking. They know that the time is running out. And then suddenly, they re begin to realize or notice that this is poor man. Somehow he has made his way into this room of counselors. No one has any idea. It's like the spiders that, seek, that somehow sneak into our houses. This poor man has snuck into this courtroom. And the Advisors and counselors look at him disdainfully, reproachfully. What is this man doing? He doesn't belong here. Please spare us of your begging. Do you not realize that this is a time of emergency? But the poor man begs to be listened to. And finally, the king says, we're out of options. Let's listen to what he has to say. And to everyone's shock, the poor man speaks with this eloquence and provides this idea, sort of an, probably an outlandish idea, an idea that is so crazy that would not work. But out of options, they, they give it a shot. And the idea succeeds. The plan works through, and the great king, who is laying siege to the little city, has no choice but to turn his back and run in the direction from which he came. Immediately, the streets again are crowded with people who are celebrating and rejoicing, eating food, but what about the poor man? Where is he? He still remains insignificant. And why is that? Right, he should be celebrated. He should be praised. He should be mounted up on the shoulders of men. In fact, maybe he should be king instead of the other guy who had no idea what to do. And yet, he goes away in obscurity no one cares to look for him. No one cares to find out 
how exactly they were saved. And the reason why he's so easily forgotten is because the city cannot imagine that the wisdom that led to their salvation came from someone of such a lowly status. One commentator writes, Wisdom is of supreme value, but given society's concern with status, if wisdom is not accompanied by prestige, it will have no audience. This story is intended to help us to value what is valuable, which in this case is wisdom. And there are several things that we can learn from this short story with regards to wisdom. If we want to adorn ourselves with wisdom, we want to wear the ring of wisdom upon our hand, that we would be wise to heed some of the lessons that we draw from this short story. One lesson we learn is that wisdom does not seek man's praise. It's not about that. It's not looking for man's praise. Something else we learn is that wisdom is mightier than strength. Something else we learn is that wisdom is oftentimes found in places where you might least expect to see it. Something else we learn is that wisdom blesses. See, because wisdom not only benefits the life of its possessor, but wisdom also benefits those around you. Wisdom is not only focused inward, but it is focused outward. It intends to be a blessing to others. And we see numerous examples of this in the book of Proverbs, where we see how wisdom blesses others. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs is oftentimes the one who walks in righteousness, the one who is just, the one who is filled with understanding. This person blesses the life of others. So for example, Proverbs 29.3, it says, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. So we see the way in which that wisdom blesses others is that the, the person or the child who walks in wisdom gladdens the hearts of his parents. Wisdom imparts knowledge to God's people. Proverbs 19.25, Strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. Wisdom blesses the nation. Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness, or the person who walks in the fear of the Lord, exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 15.23, It tells us, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season how good it is. So there we see that wisdom encourages others. So a reason why we should prize wisdom and cherish it above all things and adorn ourselves with the accessory of wisdom is because it makes us better brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. And it also makes us better neighbor to our better neighbors to our communities. Lastly, wearing the crown of wisdom makes you distinguishable from most others. So wisdom distinguishes. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So then here there's a contrast, even to the end of the chapter, there's a contrast between wisdom and folly. We see this so vividly in the book of Proverbs as well, written by the same author as Ecclesiastes. And wisdom 
in the wisdom literature of the scriptures is presented to us as that which is, which attracts, which is praiseworthy, which is something that we should pursue. And folly, on the other hand, is presented to us as that which is reprehensible, that which is detestable, that which not doesn't attract but repels. Wisdom is like a sweet perfume that attracts and magnetizes those who comes into its presence. Folly, on the other hand, is like the smell of a skunk or the rotting carcass. It's for the difference between, say, the fragrance that came from the ointment of Mary that she used to anoint the body of Jesus, the fragrance that filled the entire room, and that of the stench that came from Lazarus' corpse having been dead for four days, to which one man responded, Behold, he stinketh. Folly, we defined wisdom earlier, folly is a failure to heed God's instructions. Folly is a despising of God's ways and God's design. So the one who does not walk in the fear of the Lord, the one who does not walk according to the instructions of God, According to the scriptures, that person is considered to be foolish. And it presents to us this way of life that we should find reprehensible and to stay away from, that we should not be characterized by folly. Folly is like the brash young man who disregards the instructions of his driving teacher and ends up crashing the car, bringing injury to himself, to his instructor, and to the other driver. In the same way, folly is not only injurious to the one who possesses the crown of folly, but also injurious to those around him. And folly is corrosive. It perverts. And if folly is considered to be that, if it's considered to be a disregard or a rebellion against God's order and commands and designs and revealed will, then in many ways, folly is synonymous with sin. Folly is sin, and sin is folly, we read in the Proverbs and in places in Ecclesiastes. And because it is corrosive, we should do all we can to expel folly from our lives by confession of our sins before the Lord and by continuing to walk in repentance. Because not only, as I said, corrosive to yourself, but it's also corrosive to your closest relationships, corrosive to your family, it's corrosive to your church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now you might ask yourself, or you might respond by saying, well, I don't really see the effects of my personal fault, or my personal sins. Yes, it might affect me, but I don't really see how it affects others. I don't see it affecting my family, I don't see it affecting my church. So I'm not sure that's actually true. Well, you can't see cancer either. But it does have its detrimental effects upon the body until finally one day you're not the person you used to be. A diseased branch in a rose bush, while it looks beautiful for a time, while will not remain contained, but will continue to spread throughout the rest of the rose bush and disease it and kill it. leaving only even just a little bit of folly or a little bit of sin in our lives is corrosive, accepts the vitality of our Christian walk and spiritual walk with the Lord. 
It prevents us from being as effective as we could be in the gospel. And it also affects God's blessing of his presence in our lives. Now, we're certainly not called to be perfect, but we must consistently administer the medicine of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives by regularly confessing, confessing our sins to the Lord and repenting of our sins each and every day. Only then can we maintain our spiritual health. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. So, the, In other words, the person who walks in folly cannot help but display his foolishness. So the contrast continues. The one who wears wisdom, you can tell. The one who wears the crown of folly, you can tell. Again, look into the book of Proverbs. We see many ways in which we can see the life of folly. The kind of lifestyle that is characterized by the life of folly or the things that the foolish person does or says or thinks. According to the book of Proverbs, the foolish person is a person who runs away from righteousness and heads straight towards evil. The person who is characterized by folly has crooked speech and devious talk. This person lacks discipline. This person ruins himself, ruins his honor, ruins his family, ruins his marriage for one moment, brief moment of infidelity. The foolish person is a sluggard. He's a prideful person. He is a liar. She brings sorrow to parents. According to the book of Proverbs, the person who's characterized by folly is a person who won't stop talking. They talk and talk and talk. They love listening to themselves. This person is slanderous. They slander others. They take pleasure in doing wickedness and also take delight in wickedness. So it's not just doing, but they also take some form of entertainment in the wickedness of others. This person cheats. They're full of lust. Is an awful neighbor. Is a gossiper. Is full of violence. Lacks discretion. Trusts in riches. The foolish person brings trouble to his own household. This is the kind of person that wears the necklace of folly. And it's a necklace that we don't immediately see. Like we don't see somebody wearing this necklace that says wisdom or this necklace of folly. So how are we able to tell who's wearing the necklace of wisdom and who's wearing the necklace of folly? The only way to do that is by looking at their life or looking at your own life. How do you know that you're wearing the necklace of wisdom? By examining yourself, looking at the character of your life. What fruit are you producing? Are there any sins that your life is characterized by in this season in life? They both give off two different fragrances. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your act of spiritual worship. Here, the Apostle Paul is saying that the Christian life is one that is a perpetual offering to the Lord, that gives off the sweet fragrance unto the Lord. And how do they do that? By continuing to walk in his ways. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we, the Christian, is the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So to one another, to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we give off this fragrance of Christ to one another. But to those who are unbelieving, where they're repelled because we give off a, a fragrance that they don't like. But the problem is not the fragrance that we give off, but the problem is with the person and their nature because they are unable to smell that which is sweet. If you're here this morning and have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, my prayer and desire for you is to give off this pleasing fragrance unto the Lord. And you cannot do that by washing away your sin to the soap of your good works. Because what's needed is a fundamental change in your inner being. You need a whole new heart, and that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But as long as you are in unbelief, as long as you are in your sin, your sins give off this stench unto the Lord, and one day the wrath and judgment of God will come upon you. And so may today be your first step towards wisdom by trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, wearing the necklace of wisdom, putting on the crown of faith, so that you might be saved, forgiven of your sins, given the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and live eternally with him. For those of you who wear wisdom, strive to never, ever, ever remove the necklace of wisdom. Keep it on you for all the days of your life by heeding the instructions of the Lord, looking towards word to see what God desires of you, how to walk in his commandments, how to walk in repentance. And in this way, you'll keep this necklace about your neck. And you'll keep yourself from compromising with sin because the thing about smells is that even the most harshest of smells you can get used to to the point that we don't really smell it anymore. And sometimes when we let sin linger in our hearts or in our lives long enough, we no longer smell it. We become so used to it. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. So we must continue each day to put on the ring of wisdom and continue to expel the sin which intends to cling so closely. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. When I used to work at a group home, you're required to have a certain ratio. Right? So it's like about like one staff for every four children, something like that. And there was one morning when me and another staff were working. It's about 10 or 11 kids. Some kids had already gone off to school. And so there's still some kids left. Now one kid decided to, to, to storm out. He just ran out of the group home. He left. Now there's a protocol there, and that is like you don't let a, a kid leave. And if he does leave, then you are to follow him in case he brings injury to himself or brings injury to another person because you don't know when, what he might do. But I couldn't just leave the group home because that would leave this one staff with too many children. You don't have the right ratio there, and nobody ever told us, like, okay, what do you do in that kind of scenario? And so we had to do the one thing that 
we don't want to do, and that's call the manager, because you don't want to talk to the manager, because this guy is just prone to anger. So nervously, I picked up the phone and started dialing the number. He picked up, and I hope that he didn't pick up, but he picked up. So I told him the situation, and I don't know what to do. And I suspected, in his anger, he said, then go get him. So I hung up the phone, and I went out, and I, got, and I went and grabbed the kid, and was able to find him and bring him back. Now, the, later on, I mean, the manager came in, and we all talked, and everything was fine. It was like nothing ever happened. He never apologized for his outburst of anger, not that I'm still bitter about it. But there's a tendency, and I'm sure that you've all been there before. Whether perhaps you did something wrong, you made a mistake, or with no reason whatsoever, somebody is just angry with you. And you perhaps have felt in you sort of boiling up anger. And all you want to do is sort of respond in anger. An angry response only begets more anger. Or perhaps you might be tempted to just quit and leave, call it quits, and just not have to deal with this person and this anger anymore. But we learn about wisdom, and the one who wears wisdom is that the person who wears wisdom is a person of a calm composure. That even when someone is angry with them, they maintain their inner peace. They don't dish out the anger, even if they are justified in doing so. Wisdom helps you to maintain a calm composure when you would otherwise might be tempted to respond in a way that you might end up regretting. The river of the wise maintains its calmness even when the fierce winds of the anger of their boss rages. So wisdom is walking in this calm composure even when there's anger towards us. The flavor of the Christian life comes from a wisdom that is God-given and is Christ-pleasing. So adorn yourself with wisdom by submitting to the sovereign Lord of all, doing good to others, and even flaunting the necklace and the crown of wisdom that you wear by walking in the wisdom that pleases the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously. Lord, we come before you this morning admitting that we are not as wise as we should be or as wise as we, as, as we desire. Lord, so we pray that you would give us more wisdom. Help us to grow in understanding and knowledge. Give us the grace and the zeal to walk in your ways. Lord, help us to put on the crown of, of wisdom. Help us to never take it off. Help us, Lord, to look inward to examine ourselves. God, reveal any folly that may be in our hearts. And we pray that by your Spirit, God, that you would help us to expel it from our lives. Help us to confess it to you, to repent of that folly, and to continue to walk in wisdom. And that we might do this all the days of our life. For we have yet to be perfected. 
we will continue to struggle with sin. But help us, Lord, even in a daily manner, to administer to ourselves the medicine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we may continue to confess our sins to the Lord. And we may we continue to look to your word and walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.